Well, I'm excited to be back with you. I uh, was here last week after being away on a couple of weeks of vacation um, uh, for Reformation Day uh, and Reformation Sunday, but I'm really excited to get back into our exposition of the Gospel of Luke. Today we return to that consecutive expository series that I've entitled, Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. And our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Luke 7, 1 through 17. Remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Hear it with careful attention and appreciation. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bear. And 
the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word abides forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now for your assistance, your help to understand and benefit from this, your holy scripture that we have read this day. Do not leave us to ourselves, but Lord, continue to help us learn from our great physician our Lord Jesus Christ, our true rabbi. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, may we glorify you, Father, Son, and Spirit, today in this service. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Previously, we are now finally into chapter 7. Jesus had been for some while in the region of Capernaum and on the sea, the places on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he had been teaching his disciples, the intimate group of the, of the 12 and many others that were maybe we could call the crowd. But they too were those following and listening and learning and gaining from Jesus' teaching. Now today, he returns to his home base. Now up until this point, the last three sessions, when before we stopped this little break for my vacation, we were looking at what was called by some, or is called by some today, the Sermon on the Plain. You've all heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, this was the Sermon on the Plain, a flat level area that was near the water and which Jesus was bringing more and more people to hear the Word of God and His teaching. And finally, He had finished His teaching, and Luke tells us in the beginning, as you read, or as we read together, that He went back to Capernaum. Wasn't a long distance from there, probably just a matter of a few miles, four or five miles, something like that. Um, but he went back to Capernaum. That was his home base of his ministry at this point in time. And as we've already noted, because of the healings and because of the uh, dealing with demons and casting out demons and, and bringing a healing touch to so many, his fame had spread and continued to spread in the Galilee and beyond. Now today, in our scripture reading, there were two 
stories, two accounts that Luke gives us, two more miracles that demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and God the Son. So our outline today for the title of this message is The Great Physician. And the outline for The Great Physician goes like this, the healing of a servant and the healing of a son. So it's just two points, um, healing of a servant and the healing of a son. But there's a lot in here to unpack. First of all, the healing of the servant in verses 1 through 10. We already, Luke has told us that there was a Roman centurion that had a beloved slave that was dying. And he had decided to call for Jesus' help. Now, probably right now you're thinking, what? This is, this is horrible. This is slavery. This guy's got a slave. Yes. Um, the institution of slavery was worldwide. Still is all over this world. But the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire, while at times it was brutal, and there were horrible stories, but for the most part, what kind of slavery that was practiced in the ancient first century world what bore little resemblance to the slavery most English and Americans are familiar with. Something that is still today a blight all over the world. It's called man-stealing. That is stealing someone and imprisoning them or shackling them for the rest of their life. No freedom. No hope of getting free. A horrible practice. And yet here, this Roman centurion, this Gentile, had this great love and regard for this servant or this slave. But think of it instead of man-stealing, think of this as a very different picture. It would be almost more like a trusted employee. That would have been the status. Many times, the status in households, you could actually get out of indentured service. So, very unusual situation. But normally, you would expect great animosity to be there between the Jews and the filthy, dirty Romans, right? Everybody knows how much the Jews detested Rome. And for a lot of good reasons. But in this case, this centurion, that was not the case. This Roman officer was viewed with great favor and appreciation by the Jewish people around him. Now, we don't know exactly where he lived. If he lived in Capernaum or down in Tiberias, a little bit further down along the water going south. We don't know exactly. But this guy, a centurion who was over a hundred soldiers under his charge, he had become loved by, he had become loved 
by the Jews. And so they considered the centurion morally worthy of Jesus's help. And they went on to say to Jesus, look, this guy built our synagogue. He's, he's really a good dude. Now, it's likely the Roman officer had seen and, or heard one, of the bo- or one or both of these, seen Jesus healing people. Remember, this stuff was flow, flying everywhere, all around the Galilee region and beyond. Jesus was doing these miraculous things. And when Jesus heard about the request, this Roman officer didn't go directly to Jesus. He went to get mediators, Jewish mediators, to basically say, you go and ask him if he will come and help my servant and heal him. Because I know, no, he was implying, I know he can. I've seen it. He can do this. And so when Jesus heard about this request through the Jewish mediators, he decided to go. As requested to the man's house. But all of a sudden something changes. When he gets close, when Jesus gets real near the centurion's home, he gets another message coming this time from his servants in the household. And they tell him basically, Master, you don't, you don't need to come here in, in, a, in the centurion's house. Matter of fact, he does not want you to come because he's not worthy of you. He believes he is not worthy for someone like you to come into his house. And all, he's a man under authority. You heard that text that we read and, and how he said that. But he said, all you've got to do is say the word. And it will be done because I know what an authority structure looks like. It doesn't have to be done literally by you. It it will be done because I've heard and seen Jesus. And so the question is, why did he not want Jesus to come to his house? Well, you could say maybe it was a long trip. Maybe Jesus didn't want to take that long trip. I kind of doubt that, seriously. I doubt that. Um, But it's more likely to be a reference to the trouble Jesus would bring upon himself if he, a Jew and a rabbi of all things, a respected and revered rabbi by many of the people, went into the house of a dog of a Roman dog, despised enemies of Judaism. So that was probably why, because the centurion was respectful of Jesus and he felt unworthy himself. What a, what a, what, man, is this guy close to the kingdom or what? He, he's, he is, down on himself. He knows he's not worthy. He knows Jesus is in another stratosphere from him. And he respects Jesus and does not want to cause Jesus any trouble, although he does want to have his servant healed. So after hearing all the centurion had to say, Luke 
tells us something very interesting. You remember I told you that Luke is in some ways the gospel of amazement. He uses that word over and over and over again. But in this case, here, in this case, Luke is using that about other people being amazed at the amazing things that Jesus does. But only two places in his gospel do we see Jesus being amazed. Only two times. Warren Wiersbe says this, Twice in the gospel record, we are told that Jesus marveled, or was amazed, same word. Here in Capernaum, he marveled at the faith of a, of a Gentile. And in Nazareth, his hometown, he marveled at the unbelief of the Jews in his hometown. Only two times do we see Jesus marveling. And once he sees the unbelief of those who shouldn't have known him best. And then he looks at this despised Roman Gentile dog and says, wow, I haven't seen anything that compares to this in all of Israel. Could have heard a pin drop. No doubt. Now, by the way, oh, um, this centurion demonstrated more faith than Jesus had ever seen in Israel. And by the way, <laughs> when the centurion's servants got back to the house, the servant was completely, totally healed and well. No longer on death's door, going about his business as if nothing happened. Now, secondly, having looked at the healing of a servant and what Jesus did in Capernaum, this scene now shifts down south, southwest actually, a good ways from Capernaum. Let's look at the healing of a son. Now, Luke tells us that after healing this centurion servant, Jesus went to a little town called Nain. N-A-I-N. Nain. Now, this was a very small village. Probably didn't even have any walls. Just had intersections that they called, Luke says a gate, but it's not like a, a gate that you would think of. It's just simply, okay, here's what these, this is the kind of center point where everything connects and traffic goes this way and traffic goes that way. This small village was about 25 miles from Capernaum. Now that's, that's a good little hike. That's a day or, or more, depending on how well you hike and, how, and can get along. That's, that's a full day's journey 25 miles going down along the sea of galilee if that's the shore around that curve there 
uh, going down past Tiberias, then going down and then cutting over and going this direction toward the west, toward Mount Carmel in the Jezreel Valley. That's where this little town of Nain is located. By the way, uh, again, we got to see that uh, standing up on, when you stand on, on Nazareth, when you stand uh, overlooking the Jezreel Valley, you look over that way and you see Mount Tabor. And you're here on Nazareth. And then you look over there in between, it's a triangle. And there is the little village of Nain. Now, never was a big town, still not, not one. But this small village, uh, its name means beautiful or beauty. Just like my dog, beautiful, Bella. <laughs> uh, but not for that reason. But the, the name, beautiful. And its name means beauty, and it may have been earned by that name because of its location on a hill. You can actually see it's elevated overlooking the Jezreel Valley toward the peak of Mount Carmel that glistens. In the, it was a beautiful sight, and you had a vantage point to see all the way up the Jezreel Valley and even maybe glimpses of Mount Hermon in the north on a clear day. Now, as Jesus approached the city, he ran into a funeral procession, rather large one actually. So maybe this woman was really, um, really special and loved, but we do know that she was a widow and she had lost her only son. Now, I don't know, it's hard for us to grasp what would that mean like socially in her day. If she had no husband, she's a widow, and she lost her only son, her chances of thriving, flourishing, not very good. Not very good. Maybe she had been taken in mercy and, and maybe some with means had, had done this and helped. Or maybe they were just a tight community. But it, it was a dangerous circumstance to be in. And yet... As Jesus approached the city and runs into this funeral procession, procession, he noticed her weeping as the pallbearers carried her body of her only son to the burial grounds. By the way, I want to give you a little, little just insight. A lot of you know this already. Some of the same things are true of the, of the way Jesus would have been buried as well. But this is uh, Chuck Swindoll gives us. Uh, basically a burial custom understanding here. So this is what was going on. The burial custom of Jews called for a family to wrap the body of the loved one from head to toe and strips of linen soaked in as much as 75 pounds of aromatic spices and resin to counteract the smell of decomposition. On that day of the burial, friends of the deceased placed the wrapped body in a bear. Now, that's not a bear as in, this, it's a bear. It's basically a lattice, a carrying thing for the body to be on. A lattice frame supported with horizontal poles, which they carried to the family's burial cave, hewn from a limestone hill. After placing the body on a shelf, carved in 
lime, in the limestone wall, the family seals the entrance of the cave with a large stone. Sometime later, perhaps upon the death of another family member, the family would gather the deceased person's bones and place them in a family ossuary or bone box along with those of his ancestors. So this is what's going down. They're, they've got this guy on the, on the bear, and the pallbearers are carrying him to this limestone, uh, limestone tomb to be buried. But Jesus stops everything. Everything comes to a screeching halt. Jesus, it says, according to Luke, had compassion on this woman. And basically, he said, don't cry. No, that's not really what he said. The, the text in Greek really says, stop crying. He yelled out to all to hear. He knew this widow had no reason to grieve or be hopeless because of what he was about to do. And then he touched the frame the wooden frame or the bear, that they were carrying him on and he spoke to the man with his hand on the, on the bear. Young man, I say to you, get up. Young man, get up. And unbelievably, immediately, the widow's son sat up. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. That is, that is just amazing. Do you know that many years later, hundreds of years later, <laughs> more than a thousand years later, somebody wrote a hymn called, O Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. If you look at the fifth verse, a lot of our hymnals don't even have this verse. But the fifth verse of that hymn goes like this. He, who's he? Jesus. He speaks. And listening to his voice, the voice of Jesus. Get up, young man. He speaks and listening to his voice. New life. The dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice, and the humble, poor believe. What, what a reversal of fortunes. Misery, despair turned to glorious resurrection in life. See, Luke goes on to say that because of this miracle, many glorified God and the news of Jesus continued to spread throughout the whole region. But before I draw this second story to a close, I want you to think real carefully about something. Has it ever crossed your mind either this morning, reading the passage? Has it ever cost, crossed your mind and, or have you wondered 
why Jesus went to this little village that was more than a day's journey, hard day's journey. Why did he go on the southwestern excursion so far away from Capernaum? I mean, couldn't they, couldn't they have found somebody? I mean, Jesus was healing people left and right, raising the dead. Why, why, why couldn't he just picked out somebody in Capernaum next door and said, oh, this guy's dying. Let me, let me show you, to show you that I am the Son of God with power, get up. You're healed. He could have affected a resurrection then. Why did he go where he went? Why go so far in this roundabout, circuitous path to get to this little bitty, know-nothing, hardly known village of Nain? You ever thought about that? Why here? Why now? Well, it just happens that this little village of Nain was very close, like as in about two miles, that close. This, it was very close to another ancient town that 800 years before, a town called Shunem. And there happened to be a prophet of God by the name of Elisha that was living there and had dealings with a poor widow. And he, she lost her son. The son died. You see, where Elisha brought back the son of the Shunammite woman is recorded in 2 Kings 4, 8 through 37. You ought to read it this afternoon. It's a really amazing story. But here's what's more amazing. That story of Elisha being the instrument of God and praying for and receiving God's answer to bring this son to this widow back from the dead. An amazing thing. But Jesus was going to the same spot geographically to make a statement. I am the greater Elijah. You ain't seen nothing yet. You think what Elijah did was amazing? I'm here as the greater Elijah. I am the one who is the resurrection and the life. He would later say in another context. You see, Jesus went out of his way to come to the same spot and do the same thing Elisha did before. But Jesus was saying and showing that he's the greater Elisha. Look at, listen at the, at the text. The, the people said, verse 16 and, they, and fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Indeed, he had, and they were right. But they didn't have half of it. Indeed, he had, but in Nain there was more. 
Jesus doesn't just pray like Elisha did. And like Elijah also. He didn't just pray to the God that is and who raises the dead. Jesus commands the dead to rise. That's a whole nother ballgame. He didn't just ask, God, please do this. Let it be done. It's more like akin to what God did in the beginning. Let there be what? Light. But here it was let there be life. Life returned. Life the dead received. Don't let the significance of this canceled funeral be lost on you. Such a miracle is sort of a parable of what Christ will do at the second coming. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. This is just a harbinger. What this is, is Jesus saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. But you're seeing the real thing. But what I've got coming, Paul later tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those that have died are going to be brought back to life forevermore. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. No separation in this time. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, listen. What happened that day in Nain won't take away the sadness of death for us. Because even if, if one of us were to die and were resurrected again by the power of God, we'd still face death if, at, at some point. <laughs> Doubt, we're probably not going to do an Elisha thing uh, and go up in a chariot. Um, but Rightly understood. Rightly understood. You see, you see, again, think of, uh, think of uh, Lazarus. Raised him from the dead. This boy, raised from the dead. But they eventually died again. But when Jesus is through, and what he is giving, giving us a harbinger of, is the promise 
that though death can bring sadness for us and those we love, rightly understood, it should never bring despair because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He has come and defeated and pulled the stinger of death and there is nothing to fear. Death will not hold sway over us when Jesus calls us. We will be with him. And when he returns gloriously in new bodies with our Lord forever. You remember that. You think about that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that that day is coming. Not just a day in which we essentially revive or come back uh, from something, but in which we will forever be with the Lord, with our Lord Jesus Christ. The first fruits from the dead and that guarantees that we will follow him. And so, Lord, nothing ultimately can be taken from us, not even our life, because it only is our entrance into glory. There was limitations even in what Jesus did because that boy would die again. But when Jesus is through, none of his sheep will be lost, but will be forever with him. And that makes all the difference in the world now and always. Help us remember. Help us walk in faith and confidence and not fear. And we pray in Jesus' name.